This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtied Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. With cold and flu season upon us, today we're talking about influenza. We'll discuss why influenza is such a big deal, the importance of vaccinations, when patients should be seen, as well as other information to take into consideration. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Matthew Binnaker, the Director of Clinical Virology and Vice Chair of Practice in the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic, along with Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar, Associate Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Consultant at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Binnaker and Dr. Sampath Kumar. Glad to be here. Yep, glad to be here. To start us off, how is influenza different uh, from other respiratory infections that we commonly think about, like the common cold, that kind of thing? So um, influenza can actually be very, very similar to the common cold in healthy individuals. The problem with influenza is that if you have, if you're older, if you are have a weakened immune system, it can be much, much worse than the common cold. So initially, both of them can start out as a headache, runny nose, maybe a sore throat, uh, but. Uh, influenza can progress to be fairly severe with severe body aches, a high fever, can sometimes give you um, inflammation of the lungs or pneumonia, and uh, can also lead to secondary bacterial infections after you've recovered from influenza. And a common cold doesn't kill you, influenza mm -hmm. can kill you. Well, so this kind of gets into the, you know, why is this such a, a big deal concept? And, you know, why are we focusing a whole episode on influenza? I was wondering if we could kind of expand on that a little bit about kind of the big dealness, right? Because when many people think about influenza, right, they're thinking about uh, people who are already sick, com immune compromised, extremes of age. But, you know, how can we kind of hit this home for the everyday uh, person? So it's estimated that about 1 in 20 people get influenza every year in the United States. So it's a huge burden of disease. It results in uh, close to, um, uh, uh, the first thing I should say about influenza is that there's no typical year. Every year is different. But in uh, it's so the number of influenza cases varies from year to year, but uh, typically it's in the millions. It results in millions of office visits for uh, symptoms of influenza, it results in up to a million uh, hospital admissions for influenza, and anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 people die of influenza each year. That's mm. every year. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> now you just stopped me in my tracks a little bit about just how profound or big this problem is. Uh, when we came in the studio just here, you were kind of giving me some sense of what those numbers actually mean in terms of like... Uh, size or other things that might be meaningful for me. I was wondering if you could kind of share that with our audience. So to put things kind of in uh, perspective, um, influenza can, um, uh, the, the number of cases of influenza per year can be as many as the people in New York City. The number of deaths from influenza can be the number of people who live in the entire city of Rochester are 
hometown. So that kind of, um, you know, tells you the impact. And this is people who are ill. There are also, in addition, a large number of people who um, are ill from influenza, not ill enough to even stay home maybe, but go to work and are less productive because they're feeling uh, crappy because they have um, um, they have this profound fatigue that is associated with influenza. So there's this whole syndrome called pre- presenteeism. So they're not absent from work, they're present, but not quite giving it their all. So it's a huge sort of financial impact, not just to the healthcare industry, but just to the U.S. economy as a whole. So because of the impact, I, I guess that's what, what a lot of the push for vaccinations are, are coming from. I wonder if we could kind of unpack this idea of getting vaccinations and, and specifically getting vaccinations each and every year. I mean, that's a lot of the vaccinations that we're talking about uh, commonly are, are targeted uh, more young in life or in certain settings. Why are we talking about influenza vaccination in, in every year? Yeah, so there's really nothing more important when we talk about influenza prevention than making sure we emphasize the importance of vaccination. And like you mentioned, there are uh, several vaccines that we give uh, to children and um, And the difference with influenza is that rather than getting a few doses of your uh, vaccine over time, with influenza, you need to get a vaccine annually. And the reason for that is that influenza uh, undergoes changes rapidly. Um, And so it's got an RNA genome, and there's two different kinds of genomes that viruses can have. One's a DNA, one's an RNA. And the viruses that have an RNA genome are much more likely to undergo changes over time. So what does that mean? It means that they can have mutations in their genome, which can cause proteins on the surface of the virus to look differently and maybe even cause the virus to behave differently and be more pathogenic in certain cases. So because of those changes over time to the viral genome and the proteins that get expressed on the viral surface, that's why we have to get the vaccine every year because the vaccine strains from last year may not protect us from the vaccine or from the viral strains that are circulating this year. I see. So I imagine that you guys are quite in the in the thick of this uh, vaccination uh, is just uh, getting kicked off here at, at Mayo Clinic in our area. I, I was wondering if you could kind of uh, address some of the common misperceptions uh, that are out there about vaccination for influenza. So probably the most common misconception is that um, the vaccine doesn't work. So the vaccine does work very well at protecting you from dying from the flu. It doesn't always protect you from influenza. It effectiveness against influenza illness is ranges from 10% in a year where the vaccine strains are not well matched to the circulating strains to about 60 to 70% in um, uh, a good year. Um, but um, that's still a lot better than zero. So uh, I think it's well worth doing. The other thing you'll commonly hear, even from healthcare workers who should know better, is mm-hmm. the influenza vaccine gave me the flu. 
The vaccine, um, the injectable vaccine, which is what is used most of the time, has an inactivated vaccine in it. It cannot give you the flu. It can, especially if you've not had the flu vaccine in a while, if this is your first dose, give you aches and pains that make you feel like you might have the flu. But believe me, it's nothing like real influenza. Um, the um, the uh, other vaccine, the other flu vaccine, the flu mist, ha- does have live vaccine, but it's a weakened form of the vaccine that can only replicate in your nose, not in your lungs. So that cannot give you influenza either. So that's you know something that I hear very very commonly from my colleagues, uh, even in ID, saying I don't want to get the flu vaccine because I'm gonna it always gives me the flu. <laughs> Um, some of the other um, misconceptions around it are that um, there, it's not safe. It's not, you know, there's risks associated with it. It's probably the most uh, tested vaccine, the vaccine with which we have the most track record and experience because we give so many doses of it every year. So it is a very uh, safe vaccine. Um what are some other myths around it? Um, One thing I hear a lot is the flu vaccine is going to give me the flu like in the gastrointestinal flu. So there's that misconception, especially you know, in, in the public, about flu being the same as a vomiting diarrhea type illness. And so it's a completely different virus that causes those GI manifestations than influenza, which causes mainly respiratory illness. The other big misconception is I'm healthy. I don't need to get the flu shot. Uh, It's for, you know, the old people. Um, I'm too healthy to get uh, to need the flu shot. So that is wrong on a lot of different levels. One is anybody can get the flu and the flu can be severe uh, and make you you know, take you out of commission for a long time, so it's worth it to get the flu for yourself. The other reason to get the flu vaccine is that all of us in healthcare, we're in in we come we're around patients, we're around people who can't have don't react well enough to the flu vaccine. The vaccine isn't as effective for them because they're immunosuppressed, because they're elderly, and we owe it to them to not uh, pass on uh, influenza, which might be very mild in us, but could kill them. So that's another really big misconception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Justin, that's called herd immunity. Uh, If we have more people in the population that are immune to an infectious agent like influenza, it's less likely to kind of take hold, especially in those very sick individuals. So even though I may be healthy and not come down with severe forms of influenza if infected, the fact that I got my vaccine and I'm not incubating the virus and spreading it for as long lessens the likelihood that I'll pass it on to someone who could really become sick from it. Wow, that that, uh, idea of a a community safety net that we're really creating by getting that vaccination really uh, resonates with me. I was wondering if you guys could uh, unpack a little bit kind of I certainly want to be here for my patients and, uh, you know, I may end up getting the flu, uh, this year. Uh, does everybody that kind of, that gets a flu like illness, should I go in to, uh, see Dr. Sampath Kumar? Um, most people 
as I said, will recover completely. It's important that some people go in and get uh, uh, tested and get treated for influenza. And who are those people? So people who are at high risk for complications from the flu, the elderly, people who are immunosuppressed. Um, healthcare workers, um, you know, if you work with very immunosuppressed patients, you should get tested because if you do have influenza, it has implications for prophylaxis for the patients that you cared for. And remember that you uh, can um, transmit flu to other people for about 24 hours before you have symptoms yourself. So knowing for sure whether you had influenza or something else could be important for um, reasons other than just your own personal um, health. And it, it seems like, so I heard you say the word testing, and I just wanted to kind of ping in and uh, dive into this a little bit. Uh, Could we unpack uh, influenza testing? How is this uh, changing going forward? Yeah, influenza testing has changed a lot over the last 10 to 12 years. Um, a decade ago, there were still many clinics and hospitals using what's called rapid antigen tests. Mm. So they're quick, they're 15 to 20 minute tests that we can perform in an office or a emergency department. So that's why they were really used is because of the quick answers. The problem is that they've suffered from what's called poor sensitivity. So it misses a lot of patients that truly have influenza. Mm. So we've moved away from the rapid antigen tests and over the past decade or so, more and more labs have implemented um, molecular tests, for example, real-time PCR assays. Those have mainly been done in a central clinical lab by trained lab staff. When they first came out, labs could turn around the results in eight hours. The technology's changed. Now we can report out results in maybe as little as an hour, an hour and a half. But the really recent cool advancement is that there are now molecular point of care tests. So they're like the rapid antigen tests mixed with the central lab molecular tests. And these are actually now CLIA waived and FDA cleared, which means we can perform these at the point of care. So in an office, in an emergency department, they can give the same type of sensitivity as the central lab test, but with the speed of the rapid antigen test. So that's kind of the next iteration or wave of technology that I think we'll start to see. For more laboratory education, including a listing of live conferences, webinars, and on-demand content, visit news.mayocliniclabs.com forward slash education. This is very cool. When you're bringing up the this idea of point of care testing, this really highlights this bridge between the patient clinical practice and the laboratory uh, supporting that practice, caring for that patient. And I was wondering if we, we could kind of um, open that up a little bit and discuss uh, what are some of the uh, logistics and challenges that come into doing point of care testing. Yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, an evolution and it's going to take some time because we're migrating probably away from centralized lab testing for viruses like influenza to more of the point of care. So the nursing staff, the physicians, 
uh, are now going to be asked sometimes to not only collect the sample, but then to run this point of care test. And there's, you know, logistical barriers to overcome there. There's training, there's troubleshooting, you know, that for the past decade or so has been taken care of on the, the lab side. That's now going to be something that our providers are going to have to face. So I think at least for the next few years until these become common, there's going to be a lot of discussion between our providers and our lab professionals as we kind of work through this. Now, I can understand where having this test and, and having it rapidly available, you've explained how this can help make an impact for uh, the patients that we take care of and is important for epidemiology and understand how this flu virus is spreading this particular year, et cetera. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what does this mean for treatment, uh, having a uh, more sensitive test and having it rapidly available. What does this mean for patient care? So it has a lot of implications for um, uh, treatment. One thing, just treatment of influenza itself, uh, we, the, the, we have uh, effective antivirals that treat influenza, but most of them work best early in the course of the illness. So if we have someone who comes in on the second day of illness and we have a rapid test that I can have results in three hours, it might make the difference between whether or not I treat that patient with influenza at all. The other way that the test can be helpful is um, deciding whether or not they need treatment for other things. So if someone comes in, looks very ill, and uh, the influenza test is negative, that's somebody who might need some other form of treatment in the form of antibiotics. And the reverse is also true. If I know they have influenza, I can tell them you're going to recover from this. You do not need antibiotics. So it will help me with what's really becoming a hot topic, antimicrobial stewardship and reducing antibiotic use to in order to prevent other things like antimicrobial resistance, uh, C. difficile infections, et cetera. I was curious on that with, with uh, stewardship. That's one of our values here at Mayo Clinic. I was wondering if you could kind of, uh, if you could talk about how are we spreading this knowledge to all of our uh, physicians so they can have understand where, um, how to make these decisions about who needs to be treated and why? So at Mayo, we have really been uh, uh, trying to catalog uh, Mayo Clinic's knowledge and Mayo Clinic best practices, and we do that through something called Ask Mayo Expert. So Matt and I actually are on this group of individuals who reviews the influenza topic every year, and we go through the testing recommendations, who should be tested, who shouldn't, when sh when is testing important, it's really important early on, it's important maybe later on in the season when there's not as many cases, um, what tests to use, and then who should be uh, treated. And all of this is in something called a clinical practice pathway. Um, and um, it's made available to all Mayo Clinic physicians. And it's it's reviewed and um, uh, sort of curated uh, for all of our providers. I'm curious. I'm familiar with Ask, Ask Mayo Expert. And I was curious about what questions feedback have you heard from the physician group or the nursing group 
that are out in practice? Because I know that we put these um, guidelines or expert opinions up, but uh, sometimes questions that we didn't expect uh, come back to us. And I was wondering, are there any questions or feedback that you guys have gotten on that topic or on this topic that surprised you and have um, been integrated now? I actually just had a question today from one of our family uh, medicine providers. And the question is, as we're entering into flu season, how should I determine when to test for influenza versus when to potentially stop and just diagnose based on clinical grounds? And so, as Dr. Sampath Kumar mentioned, we've kind of outlined this in Ask Mayo Expert, and we look at our positivity rate for influenza really important to test early on because we want to monitor when influenza is entering into our community. But then when we reach a certain threshold, it's about 10% positive rate by our lab test, physicians can actually just diagnose in many cases based on clinical grounds. So if a patient shows up with fever, sore throat, uh, hacking cough, body aches, looks like influenza, most likely influenza since we know it's prevalent in our community. So that can help drive down improper test utilization and we can just diagnose based on clinical grounds. Well, that's really nice. That highlights, again, another one of these connections between what's being done in the clinical practice uh, being driven by information coming from the lab. Yeah. So the um, the other point I wanted to make is Aspio Expert Influenza CPM has the most hits every year. It's in the thousands compared to a few hundred for almost every other topic. Oh my gosh, you're making this <laughs> bloody banker jealous. You know, <laughs> I write about blood transfusion, which is the number one procedure we do in hospitalized patients. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous of the hits that you guys are getting on your expert opinions. <laughs> Not well, everyone that, can be so cool as us. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Bow tie notwithstanding. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I guess here's the question. Are we, uh, is there some future state that you guys can imagine on the horizon where we may not need to be getting influenza shots every year? Or is that just science fiction beyond the horizon? So that's the holy grail, a universal flu vaccine. And um, we are nowhere near it yet, but we have been inching closer every year. And and like Matt alluded to, uh, part of the reason is the flu vaccine keeps changing uh, ever so slightly. So uh, the vaccine needs to change to keep up with it. And there are also lots of issues with how immunogenic the vaccine is and Um, balancing uh, side effects versus uh, immunogenicity and also how long-lasting, how durable the immunity is. So we might never have a one vaccine for your lifetime, but I think we're getting closer to maybe having a vaccine that will protect you for a few years at a time against a broad variety of influenza viruses so you don't have to keep getting doing this one dose every year. There's actually a, a clinical trial that NIH has started just this year looking at a, a new universal vaccine for influenza. And I mean, believe it or not, many of our vaccines are still manufactured in hen's eggs. So they will inoculate hen's eggs with different strains of influenza to propagate the virus. That's why you get asked the question about whether you're allergic to eggs before you get your flu shot. And, and one more shout out about that. 
that's no longer a problem. The amount of egg protein in the vaccine is so minimal. <laughs> it's no longer recommended you avoid, avoid influenza vaccine if you're egg allergic. Yeah. But hopefully with these newer vaccines, we'll use new types of technology that won't need those um, old school methods of propagating the virus. It'll be more molecular recombinant, recombinant technology looking at uh, new types of proteins. So I, I, I'm hopeful that we'll get to a, a better place in terms of being able to offer a vaccine that co uh, offers protection against more strains for a longer period of time. So this podcast is really centered on building these bridges between the clinical world and the lab world. And we've mentioned in a couple of these uh, aspects, it really comes uh, to the forefront when we talk about infectious disease and microbiology. I was wondering if you would mind sharing a story with our listeners that really kind of highlights where this collaboration has really bore fruit for the patient. Like about 42 times since this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record Thanks for show. The call out. Yeah. <laughs> Let the record show it's 3:15 in the afternoon, so this is a pretty good hit rate. Infectious disease is probably the condition where we rely on the microbiology lab very, very heavily with everything we do. We play an important role in kind of uh, formulating a differential diagnosis, deciding what things to test for. Um, and then the lab, you know, performs those tests, get, getting an you know, our microbiology lab is, is outstanding. Uh, when um, we get our tests back, they're always at the other end of the phone to help us interpret the tests, to um, make sense of something that, you know, didn't really fit with the patient's clinical presentation. Um, so um, probably a thousand times every day, the, the, the microbiology lab directly impacts our patients. So 42 was a really low ball number. So I think, you know, as Dr. Zampath Kumar mentioned, uh, providers rely on the lab, but the lab also relies on providers. And just one story that comes to mind is Years ago, uh, I got a call from one of our infectious disease physicians, and they said, we're seeing this patient. They look like they have influenza, but we did an influenza test, and at the time we were doing an FDA-cleared method, and that test was negative, so it kind of didn't make sense. And then that same day, one of our really old-school methods, viral culture, grew up influenza. So we said, what's going on here? Our FDA-cleared molecular test is negative, but we know the patient actually has influenza. Make a long story short, it turned out that that virus infecting that patient had one of these mutations that caused that test to miss it. And so we actually characterized that new virus, communicated that out to the community that the test manufacturer made some changes to ensure they were gonna pick up that new strain. So it's really a back and forth between lab and um, our healthcare providers to make sure we're giving the right care to our patients. That's a gorgeous story, because I think that, that highlights that if that communication wasn't present, that learning opportunity would have been lost right. and the improvements of the test would not have been made and patients would continue to get missed until somebody were picking up the phone, making the connection. Right. Fantastic. I was wondering if you could talk about, as, as you guys may know, my heart beats for medical education. I, I'm just curious uh, for the trainees in your program, how is how are they trained about um, 
mentored in crossing the boundary between the clinic and uh, the lab. I just had a lecture with our microbiology fellows yesterday, and we talked about this. The lecture was actually on respiratory viruses, and I shared that story I just shared with you. Um, so to emphasize to our trainees coming up into the profession the importance of that communication back and forth that if we only rely on ourselves that we're going to miss things we're not going to be providing the best care so when there's questions on the clinical side we rely on them giving us a call when we see something in the lab that looks off the first thing i recommend is pick up the phone and call dr sampath kumar and talk this through see if it makes sense on the clinical end so uh, to sort of build on that answer, our infectious disease fellows spend time in the lab just doing a microbiology rotation. And then the microbiology fellows rotate on the clinical services and uh, they see, so both our trainees in microbiology and the clinical fellows sort of uh, see the other side of the uh, equation. And we also have joint conferences every week where microbiology is there to discuss the microbiological aspects of the clinical cases that our fellows present. And we have what's called Micro Minute, which is usually about a 10-minute presentation, um, which is also um, very educational, not just for our fellows, but, you know, all of us on staff are constantly learning, too. So I love uh, the way that you guys have really made it explicit, this this connection and it sort of sounds like every time uh, a learner completes their training, they're their own individual Rosetta Stone. <laughs> the laboratorian can speak clinical and the clinician can speak laboratorian. That's what we aim for. Yeah. Is there anything else that you guys want to add uh, that we haven't uh, talked about so far? Just that influenza season is um, a busy time of year for our physicians in the lab that has a huge impact on our patients and it's really a team-based approach to diagnosing and caring for these uh, patients and get your flu shot. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to be getting in line here very soon. <laughs> We've been rounding with Dr. Benneker and Dr. Sampath Kumar about influenza. Thank you both for taking the time to discuss this important topic with us. Be sure to check out the CDC website on influenza at www.cdc.gov flu. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.